0: we're going to jump back into Mark's gospel today. We are going to be doing what we do every week when we gather together. We're going to read a portion of the Bible. I will do my best to try to explain it and teach it clearly, and Lord willing, at the end we'll have some application points that we can draw for our own lives from this passage. And as we already mentioned, a really strange and mysterious and wonderful thing happens as the church of Jesus gathers weekly consistently to submit to the teaching of God's word. The power and the authority of God's word begins to change our lives, transforming us, softening our hearts. It it produces and grows faith in us, sanctifies us, forms in us Christ-likeness, as we are, like we said, washed by the water of his word. And while the weekly gathering of the church isn't the only thing that the church does, it is the primary thing that the church does, and it has remained so for close to 2,000 years now. I'm glad you're here for that. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're here to be part of that this morning because that, that is the vision that I have for this work as I'm studying and preparing and praying each week, that God would take these words that we offer and not let you walk out of here smiling at a funny joke or knowing interesting stories about my poor children who have to suffer through these illustrations every week, but, but that you would walk out saying, how great is our God that he would speak to us Reveal his will and character to us. Pursue us with a reconciling love. And unite our hearts to him through faith. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. A quick word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word, its power, and its effect in our lives. We need it today. Speak to us by the presence of your Spirit. Soften our hearts. Make us ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple things this morning. The first thing we see is a homecoming of sorts. Jesus is heading home. He went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. Well, where is the there that he went away from? Last week we saw he was at Jairus' house and he raised Jairus' little girl. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. He walked into Jairus' house. They said, no, she's not sleeping. She's dead. He says, no, she's not dead. She's sleeping. He wakes her up, raises her to new life, And he says, look, don't tell anybody. He leaves from there and he goes to his hometown. His disciples have been on a whirlwind gospel tour. They've been moving town to town, preaching the gospel. They've been healing disease. They've been exercising demons. They've been raising the dead. You know, the usual stuff that Messiahs do as they're traveling throughout the the towns, announcing the message of Jesus. And remember the message that Mark is clear on. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. It is at hand repent and believe the gospel. They're moving town to town, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. And in the last couple weeks, we have seen Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves, exercise demons from a tormented man living among the tombs of the Gerasenes, heal a woman with a 12-year condition, raise to life a little 12-year-old girl at the faith of her father, and now he's on his way home back to Nazareth. And you might think, good, this guy needs a break. He's got to be tired. It'll be restful for him to roll back into his hometown and prop his feet up and visit with mom and dad. At this point, it'd be wise to point out that three chapters ago, they thought he had lost his mind, right? He's going to his hometown. His brothers and sisters came to steal him away because they thought he was crazy. This might not be the most restful place to be. Some of you have families like that. And you go back to Thanksgiving, and they think you're nuts. And maybe they're nuts, right? It might not be the most restful homecoming, but it is a homecoming nonetheless. And when he arrives, he doesn't arrive with, like, white-collar, educated professional people. He brings a band of fishermen and tax collectors with him. Like, not only does Jesus, has Jesus lost his mind, he's off his rocker, thinks he's the Messiah, but now he brings those guys home. Like, I wonder if Mary pulled him aside at some point, but dude, I think you need to make wiser choices about your friends, you know? You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Look at these guys, they're a mess. He arrives home, and he does what he does. He finds his way to the synagogue in verse two, and he's teaching them there. And Mark, Mark doesn't tell us exactly what passage he's teaching from, but he does tell us about the response of the people who are listening. It says they're astonished they marvel at him. And what is it that brings about this astonishment, this amazement, the, the marveling? See, they, they recognized him. They knew who he was, but they knew that he hadn't been educated the way he should have been. And the way he was teaching, he was teaching as one with authority. He was teaching as one who understood well beyond His credentials. He had not been through the standard rigors of religious education. And yet when he spoke, he spoke with a greater authority than the scribes and the Pharisees could muster up. He lacked the credentials, but he possessed the power. There's a a good word for us right there. Many of us feel intimidated to do the work of God because we feel like we lack the credentials. Credentials. But if you've trusted Christ in faith, you possess the power and the calling. And he's promised to not leave you or forsake you, to give you the strength to do the job he's asked you to do. Jesus lacked credentials, but he had the power and it was confusing to them. How did this happen? Additionally, they marveled at the works that he had done. How is he able to perform the miracles? Again, these in the presence of Jesus had to have been wrestling with the same question the disciples asked, the same question the people in the garrisons asked, the same question the woman who was healed asked. What manner of man is this? Who is this guy that he's able to do these things that nobody is supposed to be able to do? What's going on in him that he has this kind of power and authority when he speaks And when he touches and heals. Verse 3. This this is the same guy we know, right? This is the carpenter's son. The son of Mary, right? We, We do know him. His brothers and sisters are right here. We know their names. We remember him. One Bible teacher said that we should understand the way they're talking about Jesus and that it carries an air of sarcasm and offense. These... These are not encouraging statements, but disparaging statements. Jewish etiquette would not be to announce a man as the son of his mother, but his father. And I wonder if maybe maybe the townsfolk still had a bit of a recollection about the scandal that accompanied Mary's birth. Wait, we know this guy. This This is the son of Mary, remember? We know how all this happened. He's nothing special. Where did, where did this power come from? We know where his origins are. J- Jesus is teaching with authority. He's demonstrating authority. And the people who grew up with him have a hard time reconciling all of that. Jesus, we know your story. We know your family. Look, we know your brothers and sisters. They're right here in our midst. Almost as if to say, Jesus, come on back down. You're, you're nothing. You're nothing special here. You're just one of us. Careful with your high and mighty authority. Careful with your speaking for for God and his kingdom. We know where you came from. We know who you are. They take offense at him. They're not thrilled to see him. They should be. There's some significant stuff going on. Remember the the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Remember, Remember Harry Bailey comes back home and they're all excited. They got banners up. They're waiting for him. Like, he's a war hero. They can't wait to see him. Jesus Jesus should have been received in that same way, but they take offense at him. Why do they take offense at him? Because he's just one of us. And he's acting like he's not. Who does he think he is? Who does this guy think he is? Or maybe, what manner of man is this? Mark Mark has spent six chapters driving deep on this issue. What is the identity? What is the nature and identity of this Jesus of Nazareth? And here in his hometown, they're asking the same question. Who does he think he is? We know who he is. Jesus offers those very powerful words. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This is such a painfully true statement, isn't it? You know, no matter how important you think you might become, no matter how influential a position you hold, no matter how great a leader you think you have arrived to be, when you return to your house with your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters, you are still whoever you used to be. It's just the truth, right? More than once, I've had to look my sweet father in the eyes and explain to him that I am a capable and competent 40-year-old man with a family and a career and a home and cars. Like, I can handle this. This is okay, you know. Um, I hope he doesn't listen to this one. It's just the reality is that no matter where you go, what you can't escape, you just can't escape who you used to be. And there's some parts of that that are, are real and abiding, right? Jesus says, "A prophet's not without honor except when he goes home. Now those of us who are in, grew up in small towns, we probably know this better than others. If you were blessed to grow up in the city, this probably isn't that big of a deal. But if you grew up in Mechanicville, you know for sure that this is right, right? Boyertown, Pennsylvania is a small town. It, it is hard to escape your past. Alistair Begg says this. It's almost as though they were so familiar with the ordinary nature of his upbringing that they couldn't see him as anything other than the carpenter's son. He's no one of great importance. He hasn't written a book. He hasn't led an army into battle. He hasn't founded a movement yet. He's just the carpenter's son traveling and teaching. And it was the ordinariness of his home life... That caused people to struggle. I was struck with this sentiment as I was studying this week. They were familiar with him. They knew who he was. They knew his story. They knew his family. And yet they remained unchanged and unmoved by him. They could see him, but they did not recognize him. They had eyes to see him, but they didn't have eyes of faith to see him as he was. They had ears to hear him, like Simon taught us in the parables uh, of the sower. They had ears to hear him, but they didn't have spiritual ears to understand that what he was saying was not just some fanciful uh, musings, but this was the word of God, the word of the kingdom itself. They were familiar with him, but they did not know him. And oh, that really stood out to me this week. Because they could tell you a whole lot about him, but they didn't know him through faith. And many of us have found ourselves in that same boat. Many of us grew up in strong religious families, strong religious systems. We're part of of religious organizations and churches. And we could tell you an awful lot about Jesus, but we did not know him through faith. We had a whole lot of foundational truth that we held to, but we never put our trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. And maybe you're here today and you've bounced around this place long enough that you could tell me a whole lot of familiar stories about Jesus. But you're sitting there today and you've never trusted him in faith. You've got eyes, you've seen the things he's done, yeah. And you've heard the words about him your heart remains unmoved. There's a powerful statement here that it is not nearness to the things of Jesus that awakens faith. It is a powerful move of God in the heart of an individual. What a powerful statement. Look at verse five. He says that there's no the prophet has no honor in his hometown. It says he can't do any mighty work there. Except that he laid a few hands on some sick people and healed them. What, what does he mean that he can't do any might, mighty work there? It means that they lacked faith. Faith was the victory in last week's passage. Here we see that unbelief is a barrier. In fact, he marvels at their unbelief. It's almost as if he would say, I find your lack of faith disturbing. In many ways, this encounter sets the stage for what the disciples of Jesus will experience in their ministry. And there's some evidence that for Mark, this is more than just a a, a historical fact. This is a symbolic encounter. Think about this. Jesus is arriving in his hometown. He's coming to his own people, and yet his own people received him not. I heard that somewhere. Like in the prologue of the Gospel of John. He's coming to the world and his own received him not. They reject him. He comes to his own, his hometown. And they didn't want any part of him. They reject him. They receive him not. And after this, after this encounter of rejection, Jesus is no longer mentioned as teaching in the synagogues anymore in the Gospel of Mark. What? So Jesus arrives, preaching this Gospel To the Jew first, comes to his own people, comes to the synagogues. He goes to God's people first, those with the covenants, those with the promise, those with the knowledge of God. He goes to them first, and his own receive him not. And in the mercy and the glorious goodness of God, he swings wide the doors open. It's amazing. This is not just a historical fact. This is symbolic for the whole movement of the church a startling fulfillment of John chapter 1, a startling fulfillment of Isaiah 53. They rejected him. They considered him smitten of God and afflicted. So Jesus continues on his way and continues on his mission. So we have the homecoming, and then we have a commissioning. He calls the 12 together, two by two, and he sends them out in teams of two. I wonder why he did that. It could be that the ministry just constituted danger. A few years later, Paul, Paul came face to face with some dangerous situations beaten, flogged, dropped down over a wall in a basket. I mean, left for dead a couple times, shipwrecked, marooned, whipped. The, the process of going town to town and preaching the gospel was a dangerous thing. It could be that he just wanted people together because the gospel buddy system was a protection for ministries. It could be that they might have been a danger to themselves that the presence of a friend and a co-laborer could help to provide clarity and correction if needed. Maybe even a figurative seatbelt because we all have those friends that apart from somebody reasonable in their lives would do really stupid things. And some of us have always found ourselves to be the mom of our peer group, right? And I have, I have always been that person among my friends that if I was attending the event, my friend's parents were okay. You know what I mean? Oh, is Matt going? Okay, good is he'll stop you from doing something illegal and stupid. Uh, I don't know that that's the best move we should make. Um, I could tell you some fun stories about me and Pastor Duke and camping trips that kind of tie into that, but we'll we'll leave that here. (laughs) Maybe, you know, Jewish law demanded that two witnesses would be present to validate a testimony. Maybe there's something to that. That these two would walk into town and confirm the same testimony about Jesus. Maybe Jesus just knew it gets lonely in gospel work and it's not good for man to be alone. So he sent out some friends. So he sends them out two by two. That's the point. But he sends them out with some additional firepower. He gives them authority. He doesn't just send them out with a message, he actually sends them out with his authority. They now possess a power that did not originate with them. It wasn't the product of a particular skill. It wasn't a product of particular wisdom or preparation. It was given to them, bestowed upon them. They are given a share of Jesus' authority and power so that they can do the works of Jesus. Jesus gives to them an empowering presence to go do and continue the work that he's doing. sounds a whole lot like the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? That when the Spirit comes to empower the disciples, power comes upon them, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He gives them a measure of his authority. It doesn't come from them. It's definitely stewarded authority. It's it's delivered to them from him, but it's to empower them to continue the work that he's doing. And he calls them to travel light. You'll notice the teams of disciples were told to take only what they needed. They were not to take extra items that would weigh them down. So, only what was essential. Only what was, which means that poor Noah would never be able to come. My Noah shows up for, he's not here, so I can still do this for another year. He, no matter where we go, Noah grabs everything he owns in his arms. Not in a bag. Every, every, every time we leave the house, I'm like, Noah, you look like a hobo. What, what are you doing? Like, he grabs everything he owns. He's got, a, he's got a backpack on, but he's holding his water bottle, his shoes, his hat, his iPod. He, he's just carrying everywhere he goes. Every time he gets in the car, he has to have everything that he has right at his disposal. Jesus says, look, travel light. Poor Noah can't come. He's staying home. Travel light. No food. No money. Only one change of clothes. You, you, they, I mean, they have to rely on God's provision, don't they? His people have to walk by faith. You ever been in those moments? When you're trusting God, but the finances don't quite add up, and you're like, look, I, I want to obey you. I'm forced to walk in faith here. I don't have a choice. You ever been in one of those moments when you are way out past your skill set, and you don't have a clue what you're supposed to do next, but you know God called you to it, so you're looking to him to show up? You ever been in a parenting situation where you lack the wisdom and you have no idea how to handle your children, but you know God called you there? That's an easy one. They're your kids. Like, you don't have to pray about that. God called you there for that purpose and you don't know what to do. You have to see, he has to show up. You ever been at the place where medicine has done all medicine can do and now you need a miracle? You need him to show up. The, The disciples are learning a very valuable lesson about what it means to walk by faith. In their obedience, in their obedience to Jesus, it put them in a position of dependence on his provision. Not only that, they didn't need the caravan of all their junk slowing them down. There's a sense of urgency in this message. We're going to travel light because we want to move fast. People need to hear this message. Big lessons they're learning. What what does verse 10 mean? He says, look at verse 10. And when you go in there, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. What? So so I'm going to go in a house, I'm going to hide in a house? So we're not not preaching, we're playing hide and seek. That's what's going on? What, What does he mean, wherever you go, when you enter a house, stay there? All right, there's a little bit of culture at play here. You see, the culture guaranteed hospitality to traveling teachers. If you rolled into town as a traveling teacher, Jewish hospitality demanded that you would have a place to stay. In the past, self-seeking traveling teachers had found their way around town, working their way up to the most luxurious accommodations. They wouldn't just stay at the first place, they would stay there until they found a better place. Well, that guy's got a bigger guest house. He's got a pool. He's got a mule I can ride. I'm going to go over there. And they would begin to move town to town, finding the special places. Basically using the people for their own gain. And he says to them, don't you do that. Wherever you find hospitality, wherever God has provided for you, you receive it and stay put and be content in it. There's a word for us in that too. Receive the good gifts of the Father. Stay put. Do the work He's called you to do. Trust Him to move when He's ready. And then He says this if they won't hear you, if they won't receive you, if they're not giving you that hospitality, then leave and shake the dust off. This is a visual that speaks volumes. When returning to the Holy Land from other nations, rabbis would shake the dust out of their garments. They didn't want to defile the Holy Land with the dirt from other places. What Jesus prescribes is is a symbolic action in the tradition also of the ancient prophets to indicate first a warning and then judgment if rejection of the message and the messengers persisted. (laughs) He stands there and he symbolically shakes off the dust it would signal to them that they're offering a prophetic warning that if you don't turn and receive, God will shake you free and leave you behind. Wait a minute, Matt. If the message is urgent and people are supposed to hear it, then how can Jesus leave? How can the disciples be sent away? Isn't that where they should stay? If the gospel needs to be shared, if people need the Lord, then why are the, why are the missionaries leaving? Don't you send missionaries to dark places? Yes. Shouldn't they just double down on their efforts? Jesus says no. That might, that might just blow our minds this morning. Jesus says no. In fact, he says, if the message is not being received through faith, if there is no evidence that the Spirit is working faith in the hearts of people, then these missionaries are called to shake off the dust, communicating that warning, and to move on. One, one pastor said this, Ministry should be more gentle persuasion and not forceful intrusion. Gentle persuasion, not forceful intrusion. Be long-suffering. Be patient. Absolutely. But don't jam something down somebody's throat. Where faith does not exist, don't yell louder. I don't know anybody who's ever been yelled into the kingdom of Jesus. Arguing people into God's family is not the greatest method. Gentle persuasion. Present what you've known. Tell them what God did for you. Offer it to them. And then he gives a summary of their mission in verse 13. As they went out, they did, they did what they were supposed to do. They went out, they proclaimed, People need to repent. You need to turn away from your previous life. You need to turn to Jesus. Lay down your past pursuits, pursue Jesus, right? And they cast out many demons, they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. They did the works of Jesus. They were given the power of Jesus, the authority. And then they went out, commissioned by him, to share his message. And lo and behold, they were able to do the same kind of works. And at their ministry, people experienced the same things. Freedom, liberation, hope. They did the same things that Jesus did. All right. So what? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for you and I today there's a couple of big things I think we can see. Hopefully, some that'll mean something day to day. The first is this: Jesus is rejected by his own people. This is a harsh reminder that familiarity is not the same as faith. And as a church kid, somebody who grew up under—you—you you heard my story before—I grew up under the the umbrella of biblical teaching. I grew up every week after week after week knowing the stories. I was familiar with Jesus, but I didn't have faith in him. I hadn't trusted, trusted him to be my savior. There's a difference between knowing things about Jesus and trusting him through faith. Of all the people to receive him, his hometown would have been most logical. They should have been able to see the things he'd done and marvel at his works, but they were so familiar with the ordinariness of his background that they were unable to see him with faith. A reminder that familiarity is not the same as faith. Secondly, immediately after the rejection of him, Jesus commissions and sends the disciples to continue and to mirror his work. Even though the gospel comes first to his own people, the mission is not stalled when they reject it. Hear hear that again. The mission does not stall out when people reject it. The world has been turned upside down. The kingdom has been advancing for thousands of years. Just because somebody doesn't agree with you or respond quickly the first time or favorably the first time doesn't mean the mission for your life is stalled out. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. Even after it was rejected, the mission isn't losing steam. He commissions the 12 and he sends them out to multiply his mission. You get that? It's rejected by his own. He multiplies his efforts with teams. Sends out the 12 two by two. And they scatter and they continue to do the work. The third, the big thing here is, I cannot help but see a foreshadowing of the church in this. That Christ comes to his own people, the nation of Israel, and they fail to receive him. And in God's mercy, it looks like, it looks like the mission is losing steam. The most significant victory of the Lord Jesus looked like defeat. It looked like the mission had lost steam because it was stalled out and rejected by unbelief. The Jews received him not. They killed him. And in the aftermath of what looked like defeat, Jesus sends the Spirit to empower the church and sends them out to do the work and they turn the world upside down. It seems to me like Mark is trying to tell us something about the big picture of the church as well. That here we have God's plan to open up the doors and welcome in the non-Jews as well. We see it happening in Acts, throughout the New Testament, the whole of church history. As the people of God, empowered by God's Spirit, go house to house, town to town, city to city, country to country, and participate in the same mission. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now here at hand. It is near in the person of Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as the church continues beating that drum day after day, week after week we see the same things that Jesus saw. People set free from the law of sin and death. People overcoming bondage and addiction people being liberated from their past people who were helpless and hopeless and without god finding peace and joy everlasting what about you today where do you find yourself in this mix are you one of the ones who's familiar but yet not yet faithful familiar with the teachings of jesus but you've not yet trusted him you know the stories but he's not yet your lord why not today Turn away from that. Turn away from your previous life. Turn away from your pursuits. Turn away from the desire to make something of yourself in this world and instead turn to Jesus. Receive from Him the gift of salvation and forgiveness. Maybe you're a disciple and you need to be reminded that you've been commissioned. Not one of us who has trusted Jesus has been given the freedom to sit on the sidelines. We have all been commissioned empowered by his Spirit, sent out to do his work. We need to be busy about the Father's business. He's given you a mission field. He's given you gifts and strengths. He's given you passions and desires. He's given you the ability and his Holy Spirit to do the work he's called you to do. So let's do that. And let's trust that as we do it, we'll see the same things that the disciples saw. And the church will be built up and grown and edified. And Jesus will be made much of here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for the word of God and what it teaches us. Thank you for the truth today that apart from faith, we can be as familiar as we want to be, but we're unmoved. Lord, I pray that you'd bring faith to the hearts of those who hear today. That we would be people who not only know stories about you, but know you as our Lord and Savior people who aren't just familiar with the ordinary details of your life, but know you in a saving, personal way. Bring faith to the hearts of those who hear today. And Lord, as we, as we look at these disciples and the glorious ministry they got to be part of, remind us again today that you have commissioned us for similar work. God, we, we've been sent out <clears throat> we Christians who find our spiritual heritage in the disciples, we are sent out for the same purpose, to preach the gospel, to encourage people to find faith in Jesus Christ, to serve you and serve these people. God, I pray that you would mobilize us. Help us to see your leadership this week. Help us to know exactly who to talk to, who to pray for, where to engage. And I pray that when we gather again that we'll come back with with stories of your your leadership and your grace and your provision. God, mobilize us to go out and continue your work here. The need is great. The harvest is plentiful. God, it feels like the workers are few. So raise up new workers, God. In Jesus' name.